I don't treat it as a as if I'm an influencer or blogger or creator. I treat it as if I'm building a company. So I have a team. I have to do sales. I have to do marketing. I have to do operations, build processes. So I think, I, in a sense, I've learned how to build a small company. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Latam Venture Capital Podcast. This is your host, Fernanda Sesto, and in this show, I have thought-provoking interviews with Latinx venture capital investors and fearless entrepreneurs who share their stories of success, challenges, career backgrounds, and market thoughts. I'm so grateful for the support I have received in the last year and the community we are building. And even though the release of new episodes has been slower than I anticipated, I'm working on staying in track with releasing one episode per week. Today's episode is with a guest that doesn't really need an introduction. He's from Peru, but lived in Mexico, now based in San Francisco. He's the founder of Startupeable, the leading podcast for entrepreneurs in Latin America, with an audience of more than 50,000 monthly readers and listeners. He interviews leading founders, investors, and executives in the startup ecosystem across Latin America. He's also a principal at Rich Capital, where he invests in Latin American ed tech companies and has been named as one of the top LinkedIn voices with over 53K followers. We discussed Startup Pablo's creation and the future of it, his experience moving to San Francisco and going through the VC recruitment, and finally about the future of EdTech in Latin America. This is Enzo Cavalier. Hi Enzo, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm a big fan of your work and everything that you built, so it's honestly kind of like an honor for me to have you on the podcast, so thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for the kind words, Fernanda. Happy to be here. Yeah, of course. So to begin with, I love to hear more about you, uh, why your like interests, your passions, and your core values. If you can tell me more about that, mm -hmm. that's an interesting question. And when I think about my core values, there's probably two ideas that come to mind. One of them is a curiosity. I think what and what's behind me moving. Uh, Free countries, a lot living in free countries in three years ago, going from Peru to Mexico, from Mexico to San Francisco in the States, has been just following my, my curiosity. Uh, that was heavily uh, feeded by my, uh, or yeah, feeded in, in a sense by my grandparents growing up. My grandpa is one of the, I, I, I said, I, I say he's like a, like a walking Wikipedia, like a Wikipedia in a person or an encyclopedia, if you want to talk about the offline world. So he was, he's probably the person that reads the most books that I've ever known. So growing up, he really, once again, like fitted that, that curiosity with answers. And when I was a kid, I would ask, why are the stars in the sky and why don't they fall? Those kind of like, just mm -hmm. kid questions, very uh, ingenious questions. Uh, and that, I mean, that has followed me up to date, uh, which is always a core value that applies for, for life, but also for, for the work we do. And the second piece is, I think, uh, taking taking risks, being uh, following my, my own passions, being independent about, about that. And I, I say that especially because I, I during college, I didn't really know what I wanted to, to do. And that, that gave me a lot of like insecurity uh, and struggles, especially because I, I went to one of the best uh, business schools in Peru for undergrad. Um, and most of my friends were like most of my friends who happen also to be the like in the first places of, uh, in terms of academic record during my, in, in my class, they were most going to banking or consulting. And I never felt like I was really into that. Uh, but there, there was also not 
any other options, at least of what, of what I was interested in, it was tech, tech and startups and stuff, especially from the investor angle. Um, I went, that's what took me to make random decisions, just like moving to Mexico when I was 23 and looking for opportunity for my, by myself. And I think that's been a core value, not only in that decision, but things that I did previously, like I don't start selling wallets when I was 13 or 14. Uh, doing direct sales when I was in college, even though my, my friends were telling me that I was building a pyramid, like a pyramid, pyramid scheme. Uh, and yeah, those, those kind of like, I guess, weird decisions going against what most people think. Um, and I feel like th those are probably two of the core values that I have top of mind. Uh, yeah, now. that's so interesting. And I can definitely relate with the fact that most of your friends want to go to traditional business roles in investment banking and, and consulting. I I tend to think that a lot of people who are from Latin America and hear about venture capital and startups are more mostly driven by the tech aspect and, and entrepreneurship per se, not so much about the business. I think in the US it, it varies a little bit in my experience and a lot of investors here come with a lot of investment banking experience and, and stuff as well. So it's interesting how it also changes. But um, well, in like, Latin America, most founders come from an investment banking experience. <laughs> so as well, oh, yeah. yeah. I think I think investment banking attracts a very particular type A uh, kind of person. <laughs> that is, yeah, in a, in a in a lot of sense, very suitable for for starting a company. That's yeah. Well, I, I, in Uruguay, the founders I've met at least are mostly technical, and they, uh, yeah, they Ur struggle. Uruguay is a different world, <laughs> a very <laughs> different small world. <laughs> yeah, very small country, but a lot of software developers, and they want to yeah, start the startups. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that intro. I love to hear that you know you have this entrepreneurial drive as well. So now you're working at Rich Capital in. Tartapiable is one of the biggest communities in Latin America, and you've been recognized as the top LinkedIn voice. I'd love to hear more about the creation of Tartapiable and, you know, what have been your main learnings from all this growth that you've had as a person yourself, as you know, your personal brand, but also your community. So, I mean, I don't know if I need to, to tell us the story of Tartapiable, but just as a bit of context, I started writing about startup with the very um, selfish objective of breaking into VC, so using it as a tool to break into VC. That was in 2018 when I was still living in Peru. As I was saying, there were not, there were not a lot of VC funds in Peru. At the time, there still aren't. There are like two right now or two or three. Um, so I, I felt like I needed something else to break into VC. Well, that sort of took me into Mexico. Um, but I had this insight that there were people in the English-speaking world, especially in the, in the United States, that didn't have any <clears throat> big, let's say, entrepreneurship or operator background, not even tech, tech background. Um, and they had breaking into VC by building a personal brand or a media asset that would allow them to scale their network. And, I, and, and that's related to the fact that VC is a network-based business. And if you go let's say coffee by coffee or person by person or Zoom chat by Zoom chat, you can build your network in a linear way. But if you have content and you put yourself out there and you start building an audience, you can build your network non-linearly, in a more like exponential way because people start going, uh, looking for you. So that, that was like, I think like the core insight that I had in 2018 and I started building my 
my personal brand on LinkedIn, uh, sorry, 2019. Then when I moved to Mexico, uh, in early, in, I moved to Mexico in 2019. In early 2020, I decided to launch the blog because I realized that the opportunity was much bigger than writing about startups in Spanish, focused in Peru, but it was actually, there was an opportunity to do it in Spanish, but focused in the whole Latin America because the same questions that I was getting from Peruvians, Peruvian founders, I got, got them as well from Mexicans and Colombians and Argentinians and Chileans. So I said, okay, there's a lot of content out there in English, but it seems like this content is not being either being used or it's not really being, I don't know, like, a, like sending across that mess, the needed messages to push forward the ecosystem. Um, and my hypothesis was that it was on, white side, on one side the language, so making it in Spanish, and on the other side, also contextualizing it to the reality of Latin America. What I always say is like uh, fundraising, sales, hiring, it's very different in Silicon Valley where most of this content is targeted to versus the reality of Latin America. And I'm sure it's uh, very different as well in other countries, especially in other marine markets like I know, Africa or Southeast Asia. So I wanted to bring that, that uh, local flavor into the content. Uh, and that really, I mean, people liked it. Um, so it started growing a lot during, especially after COVID where obviously the startup ecosystem and the internet economy gained a lot of attention, uh, just given we were, I mean, we needed Rappi and all, all, all of these tools and startups to, to basically uh, do our life in, in the best way possible. And that just drew attention into Startupable, uh, that grew. Then we, and then we started launching uh, other, let's say, products or things on top of the, the blog. Uh, we launched the glossary, the directory, and finally a podcast. And today the podcast has become one of the most listened uh, podcasts in Spanish about startups in Latin America. Um, and that's what basically, uh, going back to the initial point, allowed me to build the brand and, and basically accelerate my, my career in venture capital by way of moving to Mexico and then uh, getting the opportunity to join a, a Silicon Valley-based firm in, in rich capital. Um, what have I learned about it? I mean, to, to begin with is, that is, I feel like I don't treat it as a as as if I'm an influencer or blogger or creator. I treat it as if I'm building a company. So I have a team. I have to do sales. I have to do marketing. I have to do operations, build processes. So I think, I, in a sense, I've learned how to build a small company. I wouldn't say it's a startup because, fortunately, we don't have any VC money on startup. Even though we've actually been offered. Oh. Um, and I don't, I don't plan to because I know what it, because I'm a VC on the side. I know what it implies to raise VC. It just changes the game totally versus bootstrapping and, and being the sole owner of your own company. It really changes the rules. So I, I actually don't want to do it. Um, so there's that. I think that aspect, which I think is very important as a, has been very relevant as a VC because it just gives you more empathy to, to a founder. And I think even founders, uh, I've earned respect from founders because they realize that actually what I'm building is in a sense players, but much smaller scale, but I feel it's real similar challenges to what they do, which is like, I mean, hire, fire people, uh, I was in recruiting, sales, uh, having to manage the cash flow because I, I have to pay my team, et cetera. Um, and that just, I think, like, allows me to build a better, more deeper connection with, with founders. And they, I think they respect that. Um, there's that and then on your side as well is like how hard it is to build a business particularly in the media industry um, especially in Latin America 
in the States, um, having a podcast has become probably one of the jewels uh, because there's so much money being poured into advertising in the podcast and growing a lot because advertising in Google and Facebook in the US is so, so damn expensive. So people are looking for alternative channels, especially on the B2B side, more niche markets. Uh, and podcast has emerged as a very interesting channel. In Latin America, podcasting is still a very, very small industry. It's probably 10 years behind, both in terms of adoption from users, but also adoption from brands interested in, in, in sponsoring the podcast. And it's been funny because I think I've when I talk to other podcasters who have even bigger audiences than me, not necessarily in startups, but just in general in business or productivity in Latin America, I think I even monetize more than them. <laughs> and I complain of how little I monetize <laughs> or how, how hard it is for me to close sponsorships, uh, even though I have closed, I mean, some decent amount of sponsorships. Um, and they even suffer. And I feel like even people with bigger audiences suffer, struggle more. And it's just because we're very early in the market. And I think it's, it's timing, it's pushing through. Um, that's probably the two biggest learnings. I think it's it's very interesting. I mean, you know, your whole like story of, you know, you were interested in, in startups and then going to Mexico and then realizing this opportunity in 2020, which honestly, the timing probably really helped you as well by everybody who's totally, with the pandemic yeah. inside. I mean, content creation. I know you don't consider yourself a content creator, but content creation boomed as well. The, the creative yeah. economy started like to to increase and, a lot really rapidly during that time. So and we, and we started before the pandemic. So we, we already had some kind some amount of work and brand. We started in January 2020. So that definitely helped us ride the wave. Right? I think it's very similar to if you were rapid that started before, or if you wanted to start a delivery, uh, a food delivery company during the pandemic, if you started before, you would be in a much better position to to ride the wave. So I think that was also true for us because after the pandemic, we saw a lot of competitors come up. Some of them have, many of them have actually died. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's definitely, timing is crucial, I think, in, in startups. And yeah, you, for sure. Controls, so you just, just got up work <laughs> yeah do what, you can do. do what you can control yeah especially i think in latin america since you know yeah the, the adoption of podcasts and podcast culture things yes as you mentioned is slower i think for that point also probably helped you more at that time and you mentioned okay you're bootstrapping you don't want to receive vc money so what do you see then for the future of your podcast your community what would mm. you like it to be in the future so the, I think I, <clears throat> that's been a, an evolving idea. I think when I first started, I had the idea of I'm building 20 minute VC for Latin America. So it's a podcast and eventually it's going to become a, a, a fund. I've done some angel investing through Startapeable or thanks to Startapeable has allowed me to put very small checks from my own money into very interesting companies and rounds that I wouldn't have been able to invest otherwise just because founders are willing to accept my money like I'm in a very small check because of my audience and who I am, uh, thanks to Startupable. So the, that thesis is sort of like gaining traction. Um, but I, I've, I've gone from that idea to, hey, why don't I just build like a, in, in the US, there's this very, it's becoming more common for people to build audience-driven businesses, which basically means you have like a, a media asset could be like a blog, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and you start building like vertical businesses 
to serve particular needs of the audience you have. So for instance, Startupeable is listened by uh, family offices uh, as well as uh, VCs and angel investors. Uh, and we had this, this tool, uh, we, we, we ended up pausing, pausing it for some time called Semillas, uh, which, which basically was a matchmaking, a free matchmaking tool between investors and founders. And I mean, I think we made like 300 connections between founders and investors. I, I think like, I don't know, 10 of those. And every every time I meet, I meet a founder that listens to Startupeable, it has a high probability that some of them have used it. So I, I was literally talking to, to a founder, shout out to him, uh, who is almost Uruguayan because he is from Entre Rios, Argentina, uh, mm. Mauricio, Mauricio <laughs> from, from Kiwi. Uh, I, I met him two days ago on, on Monday in San Francisco because he, he's visiting because of SoCap. And he was telling me, I literally raised 100K through your platform. Um, and that was basically some, uh, something that I was doing free. It involved a lot of work because I needed to curate the deal flow. And I was basically sending pipeline to, to investors all around Latin America and even the US. Um, and for instance, that, that's a, that could be productized. That could be built as a product and actually charge a subscription or just find a business model. Some family offices even uh, proposed me, hey, what, why don't we take this a step further where you actually even send me like a curated deal flow? Not just only send me the matches. And I have to to review them, but send me the whole, uh, like, hey, X fund, check these 10 companies, which I, so sort of do, becoming like a VC as a service. So that's an idea, uh, and it's based on my audience. Um, and there's other ideas from recruiting. I mean, that we, I already have a startup talent listening to the podcast, and I have startups. So there's something that you, you could also do. So thinking more, instead of like as a fund, I think you need more like an audience-driven business. I think I still haven't decided. I'm shifting between those. Sometimes I feel more excited for one or the other, but I have no no rush. Um, yeah, that's yeah that's for I sure. Am. I mean, definitely, it's a tough decision to make, and there's a lot of things to consider. So, and you know, in a way, I mean, like your community, your community is relatively young still. Like it's it's been like what like three four years maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more. So you, you still definitely have time, but I, I was just curious to see like wh what perspectives you had in mind. Uh, yeah, definitely in, like- in, in the end, it has to be like this business model fit concept in the sense that it has to be the best way to, I mean, not only provide value to startup audience, but also being able to capture some of that value. Um, probably, I think the fund is the, has probably the best business model fit but it's also turn, um, it also has to be married to your own uh, interest in that particular moment. Like I, I don't wanna, and I've had like, for instance, we've done education, we've done literally uh, like online courses for startup, live online courses. Uh, I love teaching, but I don't think I would see myself teaching for money necessarily uh, because it's, it's a very, I, I, I really like teaching, but it's a very demanding work. So I don't wanna like have to, depend on teaching in order to fund startup Piable, right so it's it's a, it has like it has that combination of how you you want to capture value and also that it suits your own interest as a as a, as a creator or entrepreneur yeah definitely well now switching gears a little bit you know it's funny because you have this founder mindset entrepreneur mindset and then you need to also play the investor role at rich capital and I like you seem to be really interested in in ed tech companies. That's like basically like what you're doing at Rich Capital and very committed as well to make an impact through VC. I was reading some some articles that you wrote about that and using VC as a as a tool to do that. So 
How does it work in Latin America? How was your recruiting process when you were before coming to Rich Capital? How did you decide to that you wanted to go into VC? And also, how so? How did you how did you end up finding Rich Capital? Like, I'm just curious to know that because I think there's little cases of a Latin American investor so young like you to come to the states. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how did you navigate that recruiting process? So it's a funny story because I never go into this concept of imposter syndrome. I really never thought I could do it. And so I was at that time when I applied to reach, I was working at Talently, which is a tech startup that I, that I am an angel investor on. And I was helping them put up their finance team. Um, that was beginning of 2020, no, 2021. Um, and then literally I was... It was just like a transitory job while I was looking for my next step. Um, and I started applying to many BC funds in the US. Uh, it, I was really applying to BC funds in the US and startups in the US for that, <laughs> for one reason, which is I wanted to earn in dollars so I could uh, uh, do more angel investing on the side. Because if you earn a Latin, Latin American salary and do try, want to try to do angel investing, if you don't have savings or I mean money from, from your for family, sure. it's, it's very hard to do. I had I had done some angel investing, uh, basically putting most of my savings, which is not really, it's not good financial advice to put most of your money on startups. But I, that's uh, the, that was what I was doing at, at the start of my career. I'm now shifting away from that, so I have a more diverse portfolio. <laughs> um, and so I started applying to companies in the US, both startups and um, and funds. Uh, but on the fund side, it was really it was really tough. I remember because I think I applied like ten BC funds. And most of them, and I would write my cover letter. I mean, I was in Mexico, so applying to VC uh, funds in the US. Uh, this was early 2021. <clears throat> and most would tell me, um, hey, I, we love your story. We love your background, but we don't sponsor visas or we're not open to remote. So that was always the, the, the answer. Like, it felt like your ex telling you, it's so, I'm sorry, it's, it's, not, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> it felt like I, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, so, uh, so I kept applying literally, and I applied to like ten, and then I think the I know ten for the eleventh was reach, in which case it's funny because I I literally, uh, I say I slide it into the DMs of one of the partners at reach, um, with Jennifer, uh, so I literally sent her a call DM, uh, on Twitter, uh, and and I and the message the the message was basically saying hey I'm I would love to, I I saw this, this um this position you plan to open or you're, you're opening, I would love to apply, uh, but I want to make sure that you guys sponsor visas <laughs> or are open to remote before applying because it was like, I had to feel like a whole form. And I said like, fuck it, I don't want to, I don't want to spend, I don't know, 10 hours or five hours working on this application for them to tell me, hey, I'm sorry, we, your profile is great, but we don't sponsor visas. Uh, so she replied, she said, uh, no, please do apply. Uh, we, we're open to that. Uh, so I ended up applying and well, Six months. It was a very long process. Afterwards, I end up I end up being a bridge. Um, I think the recruitment process was very. Um, so and uh, sorry, just to, and just recap. Literally, and in, in the middle of the of the recruiting process, I was literally about to drop out of the process. And Domenica, oh. who's one of my best friends, the founder of Talently, she knows it because I literally told her, "Hey, I feel like I'm just spending this is taking very long." And I'm probably wasting my time and theirs. Like, what's the chance? So I literally thought about dropping out of the process. I think it was after the second interview. Um, and she pushed me like, no, just, I mean, 
keep pushing it. And well, fortunately, ended up it ended up well. Uh, the recruiting process was very. It's interesting. It's probably very, very different from the previous ones. But and always each BC fan is its, its own world, so it's very very different. Uh, the first two interviews were more like. There were one interview which was a bit technical. Then there were I had to build a thesis on at the literally well on a on a segment of education for for the U.S. Given that that was a market that, that I would spend uh, most of my time. And then there was one more technical interview. And then the rest of the interviews, which were like just meeting the rest of the team, were very personal interviews. Like, I mean, what makes you tick? Um, what are your core motivators? What are your core values? How did you grow up? Like, how, how did your parents raise you? So it was a very, like, I think after those first interviews, it was a very, like, the, the, the recruiting process heavily uh, weighted uh, on the cultural fit side of things. Um, which I think makes sense because I was at that time we were like 10 or 12 on the team so if you're hiring one more person that person is like them almost 10% of the team so it definitely affects the culture um, and I, I mean I think it was a very personal kind of interviews but the rich team I mean it's probably the best culture I've ever worked in my life so it's just very empathetic people that make you feel like you're talking with a friend. So that was a very enjoyable recruiting process. And well, it confirms in my day-to-day -day, uh, right now. Great. Yeah, definitely. I think recruiting for, in my experience at least, for also like VC internships, it takes a long time um, and it's really demanding. And I think I applaud, <laughs> honestly, your, your courage to just DM them on Twitter and say, hey, do you sponsor visas? Because I'm not going to spend all this energy if you don't. Like, I mean, th that energy that like I, I, I should I should do that as well, because as an international student, I definitely understand like the struggle sometimes of like, you know, I don't want to spend all this time like and especially for VC, you know, you have to write investment pieces sometimes. So like like pitch startups and you do all this research and then if they don't sponsor visas or they don't are not open to to work with foreigners it's just a little bit you know disappointing and it's also a waste of your time so that was very was and i'm sure by then you were also tired like of of you know getting that same message from from the vc fund so definitely and i'm glad that it was a good fit with reach capital and and that you enjoy your work now I'm sure it was pretty intimidating or like at least I would feel scared a little bit of like, okay, I'm going to the US and I, I don't know how the, the culture is going to be there, like in terms of, of the work. So glad that you, you've had a good transition. So you like San Francisco, like you're adjusting a little bit more or yeah. it's still in the process. That's an interesting point. And I've, I've, I definitely understand why, why you say that because I've had friends that have actually, like I've met moving from, to Mexico, I've met other people that moved to Mexico from their from their countries, like South America, for instance, uh, and they struggled to to adapt. Uh, and some of them even went back uh, to Peru or to their home country. Uh, and I've had the same experience in San Francisco: people going back from San Francisco to, I don't know, Chicago, for instance, or Mexico, even again. Uh, so yeah, definitely moving to a new country is a uh, is. Like it just add, it just adds friction to to your career in, in terms of like especially if you're, even if you want, you know you want to have take that next step, it's gonna add friction to your learning curve, your process of adaptation to the same, to the I mean to the place you're moving, and it's definitely gonna affect how you perform in your job, 
because I mean emotions is also part of your of how you how you work. Uh, and I mean obviously finding friends, uh, finding basically building your your group of friends uh, from the from the from the start. Uh, so it's definitely a lot of friction. I think I'm, I earn more on the. I tend to be a much more uh, how can I say it like cold person in a sense. So that has helped. That has helped me uh, like um, not feeling like I'm attached to the previous place I was and just like I'm. Um, I have an easier time letting letting go uh, because like in in a sense it's a challenge, right? And and if you start like you start like, you still are missing your I mean your home country or the the place where you were before and you start comparing it's like it's like i mean it's like you have to like uh, get over the previous place to come with a fresh mind to the new place uh but it's definitely not, not easy so I, I definitely yeah i mean i i think in, it's interesting because in mexico it was hard sorry in san francisco it was way easier than in mexico moving to mexico because i think in mexico it's a um sorry san francisco is a seed like the people call it a poster child city uh, I think the average uh, time a person says living in San Francisco is three years. Uh, literally, my first two friends uh, in San Francisco have already moved out of the city. Oh, no. um, but so in that sense, that's like the negative side of things. The positive side of things is that most people are willing to are, are like proactively trying to meet new people because everyone's new or most people is new are new in town. Uh, so that that in in a sense that made it easier to to meet much more people and I I would say I I mean I I feel more in Mexico I feel more at home because the culture is much more similar to Latin America obviously I'm Latin American um, but uh, in San Francisco it was way much easier to get adapted to, to the city and to find a well, group of friends etc. Yeah, I mean, maybe like the dynamics of the city, but also like you already built that ex set of like emotional tools to also adjust since you already, you know, even though oh. it was easier, you know, from Peru to Mexico because of the cultural similarities, but I'm sure. No, but actually, it was harder. You know, like Italy, making my first friends in Mexico was harder. So I, that's a good point because I, I actually knew how hard it was when I moved to Peru to Mexico already. So when I moved to San Francisco, I literally did proactive work before moving. To make yeah, exactly. sure to start building relationships before moving, so I could like literally have like a like a jump start. I know if it's your first time moving, you have no idea how it's gonna be. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, yeah. What I mean is like it's easier in terms of like the culture is similar, but it's harder on the first experience type of mm -hmm. like thing. Like it's like yeah. it comes with a lot of challenges. So yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I I also I been here in the US for four years. I lived six months in Barcelona, and also had a bit of that experience as well but i think it it, it turns out for the best hopefully mm -hmm. <laughs> uh it gives you a lot of opportunities to and and keeps you like mentally aware of other cultures and stuff so really totally. admire that that's totally so true. um what do you hope to see in latin america in regards to ed tech and i know you wrote an article about this and you have some thoughts but if you had to pick one trend specifically what would you choose mm. That's an interesting question. Something that I'm very interested in is what's the the new, like in, in the world of AI, how should higher education look in Latin America? Um, and, I, and when I mean about, when I talk about higher education, I mean regulated higher education. So during the last 10 or 20 years, uh, in, mo in most countries in Latin America, probably with the, with the exception of 
Uruguay, Argentina. There was a big push for the private, I'm not sure if this is the right word, by privatization of, of, of uh, higher education. So there was a lot of regulation pushed and that allowed for literally huge universities, private universities to, to grow out of that uh, basically liberalization of the, of, of the, of the education space. Um, and now in Chile, in Peru, in Colombia, in Mexico, and especially in Brazil, you have very, very large private universities. Like business, literally, there's are companies or, or business groups making I don't know, between $100 million up to a $1 billion a year selling higher education. Unfortunately, I mean, most of these private universities and people who, lo- who live in Latin America know this, uh, don't have a really don't really have good student outcomes and i mean i think in peru we say we have the the most uh, the most uh, well educated uh, taxi drivers uh, that that unfortunately went to very low quality universities private universities then and it's not their fault it's just what sometimes what they could afford uh, because these obviously these are very accessible private universities that would charge 100 150 dollars uh, or starting from 100 to 150 dollars but at the same time, it's also true that with charging $150, it's very hard to provide a decent education. Like what, how much budget do you have to pay for decent teachers or de- even just decent infrastructure uh, for teaching? Um, but I think with AI, that changes a lot. Like usually the lar- the, there's too big upfront costs to start, let's call it a challenger university. One of them is content, like curriculum, because you have to, um, because you have to present to the government the whole curriculum or content up front, so they approve it, so they give you the license to be a, uh, a university and being able to basically issue certificates or issue degrees. And the other cost is regulatory, basically going through that legal process. Um, with AI, that content upfront cost significantly reduces. So I'm, I'm excited, intrigued, uh, for companies to try and, and not, because mo- most people in the higher education space or workforce development space, uh, like, for, like for instance, the digital skills or tech bootcamps, <clears throat> most, of, most of them tried to provide a solution to, a, to serve the market from the, like the alternative angle where like we are going from outside of the system, uh, like alternative, I mean, yeah, like alternative, um, let's say programs, which are not certified or have, don't have a degree from the government. But the truth is most people in Latin America still value a degree. Like, and not only students, but also companies. Um, I think tech is a little bubble that doesn't value degrees, but the rest of the industries do value degrees. So I think if you really want to have an impact uh, on the middle class, lower middle class, low income people, you have to go through the, the uh, degree based. You have to like try to transform this industry from the in the, the inside and try to basically, let's say, build a private university 2.0, which is through AI, through technology, can offer for a hundred bucks a month, a very, very high quality program, which probably includes a distance, comp- like an online learning component with a hybrid or probably it's hundred uh, percent distance learning. In Brazil, online, online universities are huge. Like they're literally, I think 50% of uh, college students in Brazil attend online classes uh, which is not that which, which is not the same in i mean in, in colombia in mexico it's much uh, smaller but i think there's definitely a trend over there and 
given that trend and that the fact that the, the current uh, providers, I don't think are doing a great job, there's an opportunity to build what we could call a challenger university, uh, leveraging AI. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. <laughs> a challenging universe and leveraging AI. Yeah, I think that AI definitely is taking, like it's having an impact in every single industry and the ones that do not adopt AI into the industries, they're going to fall behind. And I, I, yeah, I'm also curious to see how that would look like and how it can accelerate the democratization of educational opportunities too. But Challenger University is a very interesting concept. I like that. So last question is this podcast, you know, is targeted towards outside investors or young people like me who are interested in learning more about Latin America. So what is a piece of advice that you would give them? Mm, Follow your curiosity. (laughs) As simple as that. Like what I was, what I started what I sorry, what I, what I said at the beginning of, of the of the podcast. Um, I think when you when you follow your curiosity, when you are genuinely interested in, it's much easier. And I, something that I, I always say is like, in the end, it's like a lot of success is just being able to outwork other people because there's there's always going to be other smart people trying to get into VC, trying to start a company, um, and the edge is not necessarily being smarter, but being more disciplined, more focused, able to outwork other people. And I think that the, the problem is that a lot of people try to like engineer their discipline or their focus or, or the amount of work they put on, into something. And sometimes it's r- the, the root cause of why you're not putting <clears throat> so much work or so much effort into something. It's not that you don't have the right methodologies or productivity frameworks. It's just because you're not really deeply interested or curious about that topic. And when you are, the whole thing changes. And in my case, that was Startup Alley. I, I never, I think I never worked as hard in something or in my life until I found that Startup Alley because I discovered that thing that I was genuinely curious about. And it made things so much easier. Like I was working until, I mean, I even got, <laughs> even got to, I probably went to extreme and got burned out. Uh, but that's just an example to say that, um, it I had never worked as hard before, and it suddenly became very easy to work hard because I was deeply interested in, in that. So if you're going to spend time doing something, I'd say, I, I don't think it's easy. It's definitely a challenge to find what you're curious about. So it's just trying to be, especially early in your career, being very uh, intentional about trying many things. Uh, and I think that's one of the, one of actually one of my critiques about universities, which is university comes from the world universe. So it, it's supposed to teach you about the universe, like a very horizontal view of things. But most universities tend to actually do the opposite, like uh, push you for a specialized path very quickly in life. When you are very young, you're very immature, you don't really know a lot of, about life or even about yourself. So I think universities, at least from my perspective, should try to have them push you into try different aspects of careers, of professional life, or, of, I mean, disciplines. Uh, so you actually discover what what makes you tick, uh, and if you're not getting that from your, your your university or your whatever education program you're taking, then it's it's up to you to take it into your own hands and try to actively or intentionally try many things. And that's mm-hmm. I, that's also why I think early stage startups are a great place to to start your 
your, your career, especially if you don't know what you actually like or what you want to do, because you're going to be exposed to many different uh, things of building a, I mean, the many different areas and functions of building a company. And then you probably find out that, you know, you were studying marketing, but you actually love operations or recruiting and you had no idea about it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And definitely curiosity is such an important value for me as well and has drew me to. So I I appreciate that. And I'm and I'm sure the the listeners too. So thank you so much. And so really love this conversation. And I'm really happy that you were able to to come to the podcast. Thank you, Fernanda, for having. I met Enzo last year thanks to an introduction by Gadi Borovic, who also I had the pleasure to interview for the podcast. You should check it out. He told me his story and gave me great advice on how to start a podcast and build a brand. And I really think his story is very inspiring to me as a podcast creator and also as a Latin American who's also trying to break into venture. And I'm really glad you guys were able to hear more about his experiences and perspectives. I hope you learned something new today. Please make sure to share this episode on your network and come back next Tuesday to listen to the new episode with Amaris Mendoza from 500 Startups.